Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, the Working Families Party and their challenge to a powerful political bloc. Inspiring urban artistic expression. Plus, a new art installation has blossomed on Brick's walls. Hi, and thanks for joining us. I'm Ashley Ford. And did you know that since Trump's inauguration, New York State's Attorney General has filed over 100 legal or administrative actions against his administration? That's basically something new for every four days of his presidency. One of Attorney General Eric Schneiderman's most memorable actions, i.e. lawsuits, came before Trump even took office, when the office sued Trump U for defrauding its students. Trump settled for $25 million. The more recent suits have covered issues like immigration and the environment. At a time when Republicans control all parts of the federal government, AGs in blue states are seen as a vital line of defense. As Schneiderman recently said, the biggest threat to New Yorkers right now is the federal government, so we're responding to it. And indeed they are. Whether doing it solo or with other states in multi-state legal challenges, like one filed in February with 10 other AGs. It's about Trump suspending the clean water rule, passed in 2015 and intended to protect wetlands and drinking water from pollution and flooding. It gives us hope that there is a line of defense when one might feel a bit helpless. And you may not have known there's also a fundraising group for Democratic attorneys general. Feels political, but these are highly political times, and these AGs perhaps wield more power than our elected members of Congress. That might especially be the case should people like Paul Manafort or Michael Flynn get convicted of crimes unearthed by the Mueller investigation, and then Trump decides to pardon them. Schneiderman has already begun an inquiry into Paul Manafort's alleged money laundering, with its ties to Brooklyn. On the show today, the Working Families Party takes on Democratic state senators who've aligned themselves with Republicans, an urban art incubator, and a built landscapes art installation in our building. But first, these things. Today is the 53rd anniversary of Bloody Sunday, when some 600 civil rights marchers crossed Edmund Pettus Bridge on the outskirts of Selma back in 1965, and then Alabama state troopers attacked them with tear gas and nightsticks. They sent 17 to the hospital, including young activist and now Congressman John Lewis, who suffered a fractured skull. Footage of the assault was broadcast nationwide, spurring outrage, but also action. The events were credited with galvanizing support for the passage of the Voting Rights Act later that year. A bill introduced by two Brooklyn-based lawmakers intended to keep guns out of certain people's hands has seen smooth sailing so far in the state assembly. Last week, it cleared committee and will now go to the full assembly where it's expected to pass. But it might encounter a challenge in the Republican-dominated Senate, where the same bill failed to pass last year. We'll talk more about that chamber later in the show. The law would make it so that family members or law enforcement worried about someone who might present a danger could petition the courts to bar them from purchasing a firearm. We're going to talk tomorrow about local gun control laws, so stay tuned for more on that. Empowering Young Women was the point of Louisa May Alcott's Little Women, which this year celebrates its 150th anniversary and has inspired a remake called Meg, Joe, Beth, and Amy. This homage meant to empower young women and help them navigate some of today's heavy issues like sexuality and identity is a graphic novel published by Little Brown Books for Young Readers and Tapas Media. 
And this time, it's not set in New England. It's set, where else? In Brooklyn. Starting today, you can follow the stories of the racially diverse characters, still the March sisters, as they face the challenges of a new era. Episodes will be released every week through October, and the full paperback will follow in November. Stay tuned for our first guest. Bipartisanship is in short supply these days. But in New York State, there's a rare Democrat-Republican alliance. We've talked about it on the show before. It begins with the Independent Democratic Conference, or IDC, a group of eight state senators who caucus with Republicans, giving them a legislative majority. But as you've heard on the show, this isn't the kind of bipartisanship that's got people all warm and fuzzy. Many see these Democrats' actions as a betrayal. Not least among the critics is the Working Families Party, or WFP, which is fielding a string of candidates to challenge IDC senators in upcoming elections. To tell us more, we have New York's WFP spokesperson, Dom Leon Davis. Welcome to 112BK, Dom. Thank you for having me. So, as I understand it, the WFP started or had its origins in 1998. So you're coming up here on 20, 20 years, yep. which is... I mean, that's significant. That's something to celebrate. Can you tell me a little bit about how the Working Families Party got started? Absolutely. So the Working Families Party was started uh, at a time when a lot of people were really frustrated with uh, centrist Democrats and this idea that, oh, we, we had to um, you know, cater to uh, special interests and, and hedge funders in order to, to maintain power, uh, in order to get anything done. Um, and so it was started at this idea that, no, we can, we can run progressive uh, you know more left of center uh, candidates and and win and we you know we we firmly believe that you know working uh, running working families Democrats and, and Democrats who really fight for values of working class people um, is what helps us win win elections and and, and really get things done for people um, so that was I think that, that was it was started uh, really out of a frustration of a lot right. of people here in Brooklyn. So do you guys consider yourselves a third party per se, or is it just sort of like an offshoot of Democrats? We consider ourselves a third party, um, and you know, we are more ideologically aligned with Democrats, um, and so a lot of times we'll find ourselves uh, endorsing Democrats and running them on our line. So New York benefits from fusion voting, where uh, someone who's registered to uh, one of the two major parties can also run on a third party line. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of times we'll find ourselves running Democrats on our line, but uh, every so often, you know, we, we find that the, the Democrat that's running um, just isn't, isn't working in the best interest or isn't running in the best interest of working people. Right. And so uh, we've had a number of occasions where we've run candidates just on our line and, uh, and won. So uh, the public advocate, Tish James, was one of the, she was the first one to run on the Working Families Party line as just a Working Families candidate uh, and was elected to city council um, just in the Working Families line. Um, and Assemblymember Diana Richardson uh, was, I believe, the more, one of the more recent ones mm -hmm. uh, to run on our line. So, uh, you know, we do run people on our line for, you know, just as working families candidates from, on occasion. Mm -hmm. Here's the thing that gets me. Why am I just hearing about the Working Families Party? Well, you know, America it, it really benefits from a two-party system, and so, you know, the, the two parties garner 90% of the attention. Um, and it, it isn't until, you know, there's a dynamic third-party candidate that, um, you know, comes along that then you start hearing about third parties in general. But really, a lot of the work that we do 
is to hold Democrats accountable to working people. And so, you know, we we won't necessarily try to make a big splash, and we won't always go out and say, oh, you know, we have to find someone to run on our, just on our line because right. that's not always productive. You know, if right. there's if there's a, a good progressive Democrat that's running, then we're gonna we're gonna you know put in the work to make sure that they're the one who secures a Democratic nomination, and then do the work to make sure that they beat the Republican in the race. Um, mm -hmm. So we, a lot of times, are behind the scenes, um, but uh, when people, what a lot of people do know us for is uh, our issue work. You know, we, we were a major force behind the Fight for 15, mm -hmm. uh, behind paid family leave. Um, and so we started to garner some attention in 2013 when we had the, the, the big progressive wave happening here in New York City. Um, right. You know, we were, um, you know, we were very helpful to the mayor and to a lot of progressive city council members. Mm -hmm. um, so th there are a lot of people who do know us, and then there are right. a growing number of people who are just finding out about us for the first time. And we're, we're, we're happy to, uh, to welcome them into the Working Families Fold. Fantastic. Um, you know, as much as I'm just hearing about Working Families Party for the first time, I'm also just hearing about the IDC for the first time. Can you tell me why has the IDC in the past year or so also become such a hot topic of conversation in New York? So I think it has to do with what's happening on a national scale. After 2016, people kind of woke up and realized, oh, we can't just focus on national politics. We, we can't, you know, just look at what's happening in the White House or even in Congress. We have to look at what's happening on a statewide and local level. Um, and so New Yorkers, you know, started looking around and saying, why, why don't we have, you know, New York's such a blue state. Why don't we have a Democratic majority in both houses, um, you know, as well as the, the, the governor's mansion? And so um, when people started looking into it, they found out about the IDC, you know, right. who, um, for seven straight years, seven straight budgets where you know, all the decisions really get made um, have given power over to, uh, to a Trump-supporting Republican. Right. Um, and they're, they're not happy about it. So we've, had, we've seen uh, a, you know, a big rise in these grassroots groups, the No IDC, True Blue, mm -hmm. Indivisible groups um, that have you know, come together to say, we're not going to stand for this anymore. And 2018 is going to be the year that we you know, vote you out of office. Right. Um, and so it, people are up in arms about it. Yeah, and you guys jumped into that ring as well. Absolutely. Well, we've been calling for the IDC to return back to the mainline Democrats for years. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a big part of 2014, uh, when we made our endorsement of governor, was that he was going to uh, bring the IDC back into the mainline Democratic fold. Um, that didn't happen. And uh, basically, we, we said, you know, we're not going to, we, we can't trust you all anymore. And you, you all have had seven years to, to come back, and you're clearly not going to do it. So uh, we recruited and, and endorsed uh, seven candidates so far against um, against IDC members. We are still looking for an eighth, mm -hmm. but uh, we're we're very excited. We're very passionate about these candidates. Uh, we believe that yeah. we can we can uh, we can get them elected, and people are are uh, really really excited about them. Are these candidates traditionally Democrats? Yeah, so the, the, the candidates that we're running, they're all running as, uh, as working families Democrats. They've all taken right. on the mantle of being a working families Democrat. Working families Democrat. Um, really kind of juxtaposing themselves against the IDC. Um, right. you know, we like to call them Trump Republicans because they're supporting a Trump 
you know, uh, leader in, in Albany. So, you know, they really have taken on this mantle of being Trump Democrats, I'm sorry, not Trump Democrats, but Working Families Democrats. Right. Um, and we just had a big rally on Sunday at Mega Evers. Um, we brought them all together for the first time. We had um, hundreds of people there. We were, like, over capacity. Um, where people got to see them for the first time, and they all got to, to you know, talk about why they're running and what has driven them to, to want to do this. Wow. So Diane Savino, who was one of the, I believe, founding members of the Working Families Party back in 1998. She was. And also a founding member and of the And also a founding member of the IDC. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Well, <laughs> she was saying that there's that the WFP is no longer a great vehicle for working families that it once was. Um, there's been a lot of things said um, from the IDC mm -hmm. um, about the WFP, um, and what it really boils down to is that the IDC is not working in the best interest of working families. They're, you know, they're beholden to the real estate donors, you know, to these hedge fund donors that um, that help keep them in power. Mm -hmm. um, and WFP has always been about holding elected officials accountable to people, and uh, so when they when they get exposed for being accountable to their donors and not working people, um, you know, they throw all kinds of things out there. Mm. Um, but our members are uh, the, the people who voted online year after year. Um, they they know the difference and they, they know the truth. So um, you know, and, and the fact that we're a growing national organization that you know we've we, we've been instrumental in helping elect progressives across the country. Um, Randall Woodfin in, in Birmingham. Uh, Chokwe Lumumba in, in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, you know, we've we have played uh, a major role in helping elect progressives for years, and uh, we're not stopping. Right. Well, you know, some people have warned about the creation or formation of a Tea Party of the left. Where does the WFP fall into an idea like that? Um, personally, I don't see that as a bad thing. I think uh, you know, when when you look at what the Tea Party did with the Republicans, it really um, shifted the view from more centrist, um, you know, let's, uh, you know, let's compromise on our values kind of party to really being beholden to their base. Um, and I, th I think that, you know, Democrats could stand to benefit from being, uh, being held accountable to their base as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I personally don't see that as a, as a bad thing. I think the difference is, you know, we um, can be more strategic about uh, how we how we run in elections and how we how we win and how we um, get things done for working people. Is this a necessary fight? Do you feel like with the WFP and the IDC, like is that something that that brawl needs to happen? And I'm only asking because I'm I'm wondering how we then realign the Dems to get on the same page in order to you know win some of these elections coming up. So I absolutely believe that it's it's necessary. Uh, you know, some people will say, "Oh, why don't you go after Republicans?" Well, first of all, we do. Mm -hmm. But second of all, electing good Democrats is critical to helping take back Congress, uh, mm -hmm. to helping you know Congress have a Democratic majority that can really get things done. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you look at redistricting, we, in two years we'll be up for redistricting again. And if the state legislature is in the hands of Republicans, it's going to continue to get gerrymandered to benefit Republicans, as opposed to having a fair uh, cutting of the districts. And right. uh, you know that's that's a big part of why we have to have a Democratic legislature. Mm -hmm. um, 
but we just, a, a fundamental uh, belief of the WFP is that when you put forward good progressive candidates who work on behalf of working people, that those are the ones who are the most electable, and mm -hmm. that's how you beat Republicans. Um, so yes, I believe it's absolutely a fight that we have to have. Well, thank you so much for being here and for having this conversation with us. Hope to have you back sometime to uh, keep talking. Absolutely, thank you for having me. With festivals, residencies, mentorships, and workshops, a Brooklyn-based organization seeks to invigorate urban art, increase people's outlet for expression, and focus on themes and issues impacting the community. The organization, formerly called the Hip Hop Theater Festival, is now called High Arts. Recently, I spoke with its executive director, Raymond Codrington. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me a little bit about where the name High Arts comes from? Sure, we actually started as the Hip Hop Theater Festival in the year 2000, so doing the math, in 20 years, in 2020 we'll be 20 years old, which is great. High Arts rebranded um, about six years ago, and it was an extension of our work. We had started doing the Hip Hop Theater Festival, producing Hip Hop Theater Festivals throughout the country, the Bay Area, Chicago, New York, and Washington, D.C., and I think six years ago we decided to extend the work a bit, um, focus a little bit more on visual art, but also maintain our connection to hip hop culture and theater. So. High Arts is an extension of the hip-hop theater, both organization and brand. Wow. And you've got a degree in anthropology, right? I do. I have a you have a degree in anthropology. <laughs> I do. I'm a cultural anthropologist. Can you talk to me about the path that leads from working on your degree in anthropology to working in like the urban and hip-hop arts community? Sure. I mean, it's not as kind of uh, tangential as it may seem. Mm -hmm. uh, my dissertation research was on the globalization of hip hop. So I was interested in oh. what young black kids in the UK were doing with American hip hop. How they're forming their own ideas about race and class but using hip hop as you know, the medium by which to do so. Mm -hmm. So after I left graduate school, I took a postdoctoral fellowship at the Field Museum in Chicago and was doing urban anthropology research. And really, I mean, I, I sort of I found myself there, but I was also looking to bring in more hip hop into it. And there I organized what was called at that time the Hip Hop and Social Change Conference where we brought in artists, activists, um, intellectuals to talk about the political relevance of hip-hop in their own countries. So we brought in people from, oh, South Africa, Brazil, um, Europe, across the U.S., Chile. Um, so just all across the diaspora. All across the diaspora, and really allowed them over several days to really compare notes on what was going on with hip-hop in their country, how it was being used, how people were politically engaged across these mm -hmm. different sectors. So my background is really in hip-hop and hip-hop studies, and doing that in the museum allowed me to kind of extend that and kind of see how it can be used outside of the university. So since then I was off and running, took another job at, university, at, another, at a university, took another job at another museum in Los Angeles, and then uh, worked in policy for about six years at the Aspen Institute. But I think for me, the through line has been sort of the arts, engagement with community, and how do you make anthropology accessible to, to broad audiences. Um, and the opportunity to work at High Arts came up and kind of jumped at it. So it's been, a, it's been a good mix. It's allowed me to bring all my sort of experience, skills, um, yeah, together in, in one place. Can I ask, why Harlem and not Brooklyn? Uh, it's just geography, actually. We, yeah. we started in Brooklyn. Yeah? The Hip Hop Theater Festival started in Brooklyn. Um, we actually had the opportunity to, to move into a permanent space, which mm. is PS 109 East Harlem, 99th Street between 2nd and 3rd. So that particular space is actually an interesting 
I mean, as an anthropologist, I see it as a cultural experiment in a mm -hmm. lot of ways because we have um, 90, 90 units, so 90 apartments, that's been mm -hmm. refashioned from an old public school. So PS 109 is actually a wow. public school built to the turn of the century. It's on the National Registry. It's a beautiful building. So you have all artists living in the building. And then you have arts organizations that rent space in there. And, and that's a residency program, right? Or you guys have a residency program? So we, have, we, have a, we do have a residency program under the umbrella of high arts as programming. So right. PS 109 is a building. Mm -hmm. You have 90 units of apartment, 90 apartments. They're all artists. And then you have performance spaces in there. And then you have oh. rental spaces for nonprofit organizations, nonprofit arts organizations. So we are one of the wow. renters. We have access to a black box theater, a dance rehearsal space, as well as a visual arts gallery. Wow. Um, but we do have residencies under that, which we, in which we do engage artists from across the country and across the city. So we've just had, we have artists from Brooklyn. We've just brought in an artist from Los Angeles who was in residency. Um, we also have a theater and company in residence called Truth Worker who are from Brooklyn. So we try to do the all city thing as well as nationally. Um, we, have, we are curators in residence for hip-hop culture at the Kennedy Center, so we've helped them develop some of the hip-hop programming over the last couple of years. We have a DC Hip-Hop Theater Festival that's been going on for 18 years now, so our, our, our reach is pretty broad. Your, re <laughs> Your reach is incredibly broad. Like, this is wild. And I th like, I know about elements of it, like, and I've known about elements of it, but it's, it just reaches so much further than I thought. Can you tell me, like, is somebody like me, I mean, I don't... I wish I had time, uh -huh. like, but I don't. But there are people like me who are gonna hear this and be like, I didn't know, uh -huh. I wanna be involved in some way sure. in high arts, I want to find a way to volunteer or to participate or to make something with them. Uh -huh. How do they find out more about it? Sure, you? you can hit us up on our website. Um, we're at high-artsnyc.org. High you can do info at high dash artsnyc.org and high like hello, not H-I-G-H. -H. Mm -hmm. And um, let us know what you want to do. Let us know what your interests are. We're always looking for ways and spaces in which to bring in community members, people interested in the arts, not only that are artists, but also interested in supporting the arts, mm -hmm. through volunteering, through internships. So there are a number of opportunities in which people can plug themselves in. I encourage people to visit our website and, and look at the range of activity and the programs that we do, where we do the work and how we do it. Um, I feel like we have something special and I'd love more people to know about it and come up there. It's sort of a hidden jewel. Mm -hmm. It's becoming unhidden. More people are finding out about it, which oh, is yeah. great for us. Mm -hmm. So it's becoming, it's getting on the radar much more, more recently, okay. and that's, that's great for us. Good. Well, thank you so much for being here, Raymond. I really appreciate it. Hopefully we'll have you back soon to talk about more of the exciting things you guys are working on. Thank you. If you come to Brick House between mid-March and early May, you'll see that the walls of our hallway have sprouted a series of beautiful three-dimensional landscapes, kaleidoscopic islands of paper, wood, and fiber. The exhibit is called, What Time Is It There? And here to tell us about them is the woman who's created them, artist Katie Shima. Thanks for taking a few minutes away from your installation and coming in to talk to us, Katie. Thank you. I really Pleasure appreciate it. Can you tell me where the name of this particular installation came from? Yeah, so um, the, basic, the basic idea behind the installation is it's kind of inspired by um, the way that it, it seems like we're growing, we're growing apart from each other. We have mm -hmm. these kind of isolated cultural uh, groups that are you know, separated by different media bubbles. Um, and so I wanted to create a, 
a kind of series of these floating landscapes, each one kind of on its own kind of timeline, on its own its own wavelength, kind of not interacting with each other, um, to kind of reference the the isolation that we that we're experiencing right now, especially the last few years. Um, so, what time is it? There is really a question, kind of, um, you know, in in hopes that we can we can actually be curious about other groups and kind of try to try to come to some kind of mutual understanding. I love that. What's been the process of installing it? We've been watching you do this for basically a full day, putting in mm -hmm. this installation. How is that working for you to make it look the way you want it to? Um, well, so everything, um, all of the sculptures were kind of planned out beforehand. So mm -hmm. I have um, I have a 3D model and some sketches of, of kind of how they're supposed to look. Mm -hmm. um, so first I drew the, the guidelines that you see on the wall. And then um, each each piece kind of has a um, it has a cleat in the back of it mm -hmm. that just hooks on it just hooks oh. onto the to one that's affixed on the wall. Okay, so that's the process. Well, I like that to be perfectly honest. I like the way like they both seem to be coming out of the wall, depending on which way you're looking at it. But I feel like when I'm right in front of it, even with the shadow and the depth, it almost looks a little more flat against the wall, mm -hmm. personally. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about the color choice? Because each line is a different color. Do those colors, are they just like the colors that came to you that seem to represent you know, those lines for you, or do they mean something? Um, well, each, um, each kind of, each of the four lines mm -hmm. um, is representative of, of a different type of landscape. Mm -hmm. um, to try to distinguish them from each other, so um, so there's uh, there's glaciers, um, canyons, Alps, and volcanoes, and okay. each one of those kind of has a different color that's that's kind of associated with it. Like the the glacier mountains are, are in the more blue range, mm -hmm. um, and the volcanoes are more red. So that's that's where the colors came from. How does your education as an architect then inform the art you make like this? Um, well, I made a lot of models in school, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> gluing very small pieces of things together. Right. Um, but I think it's also, um, in a larger scale, I, I think a lot about how things are made, how mm -hmm. things are put together. Um, and that definitely influences my, my work as an artist. So how do you make something like what you have right here? On the table right now, you have part of the installation. It's in this yellow. Mm -hmm. color, I want to say. It's like, it has some of those small pieces. It's like really intricate, at least to me, you know, somebody else might be like, you pro you're probably looking at this like, no, it's not. But for me, I'm like, this is crazy intricate. How do you make something like that? Um, so with something like this, I start, I start by just kind of sketching it out and figuring out sort of what I want it to look like. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I actually model it in the computer then. Mm -hmm. um, and with with most of my with most of my work, I actually use kind of real um, real machines and kind of real um, imagery mm -hmm. to kind of um, inform the shapes that are in the sculpture. Right. Um, and then once I have it all modeled, I laser cut um, and then assemble the pieces by hand. Wow. And what kind of material is this right here? This is plywood. Uh, yes, it's very thin plywood. Fantastic, mm -hmm. fantastic. And when is the opening here at Brick House? March 14th, but are there particular times that people should come check it out or just anytime? Yeah, seven to 9 p.m. Seven to 9 p.m. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for being here, Katie. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
tomorrow, we'll be back to talk about gun control legislation being proposed in New York State and the world's youngest street artists. You can't miss it. We'll see you then. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barbie, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hogsack, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leap, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>